Welcome to this episode of The Work Podcast. With my co-host, John Sumser, I'm Gina Killey, and we are unpacking the complexities of work through some pretty tough questions with some great guests. Uh, John, I know we have a very interesting guest with us today, and uh, and you you guys know each other. I think... Uh, especially on the AI topic. I think we're going to have a lot to chat about. So take it away. Well, it's great. Thanks, Gene. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really great. We've got Sean Burton with us. And Sean is the founder of a company called Hiring Solved, which does something called talent intelligence. Um, and uh, what I think is additionally interesting about Sean is, he's, is that he's got his fingers in the... AI and ML worlds all over the place. So we're going to have some fun talking about data, talking about whether or not um, automated tools solve more problems or create more problems. So Sean, how are you? (laughs) Good, good, John. I'm good to, good to see you again. Good to see you both. So let's, let's dive in. Um, I'm, you know, I, I look at this a lot. So I'm seeing a ton of AI doing a ton of stuff. Particularly in recruiting, there seems to be no stone unturned. Where do you think it works and where do you think it doesn't? Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I started to become fond of saying it works. It works in places where we have to do tasks that at a very high scale that previously we couldn't do. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, so it works pretty well. Uh, for example, if we wanted to decide or figure out how many females just applied to our job and maybe we got a thousand applicants. Um, now we could do this with a human, uh, and a human would go through and, and sort of look at the information and mark down whether the person was male or female. Um, What's interesting about that task is that the the AI or the the you know neural network based model that we would train to do the same thing will do it in a way that's very similar to the way the human does it. They'll both have an error rate, a non-zero error rate. Uh, humans tend to have in a task like this with a thousand, let's say, candidates or paper resumes or however you want to look at it, they tend to have a five to to eight percent error rate. It goes up the more they do it. So the more the human has to do this repetitive task, the larger the error rate starts to get. Whereas uh, um, you know, machine learning-based system, it becomes a good task if we can train a system up that starts to perform well to do this um, at about that same error rate. The difference is the machine will do it at a, about the same error rate a thousand times, a million times, 10 million times. And of course, with the human, it becomes an untenable problem, right? We can't get a human to sit down and do this times, you know, maybe a thousand candidates or 10,000 candidates. Uh, but we, so, so those are that, that's sort of the way I think about it is the problem, problem domain is stuff that humans don't really want to be doing. They tend to get worse at the more you give it to them. They don't, it's not interesting to them. Um, but there's data that can be pushed through a machine learning model that can train it to do something similar to this. And so you see these things like, Spam filtering is is the, the the most the oldest one, pretty much the oldest most vetted one. It is exactly the same thing. Humans could do it, but it's repetitive and time consuming. So when I think about 
what would be a good application for a machine learning based system? That's how I think about it. Is, is it is something that we have a lot of data we could train on, we understand sort of how a human does it. And, uh, and, and if we can get a system working that way, would it, would it open up new opportunities if we could do it at a very large scale? If we could do it, you know, 10,000 times a second or 10 million times a second or an hour, that sort of stuff. On the other hand, it works terribly for a lot of other things. Like, yeah, that's what I'm curious. That's what I'm curious about. You know, so you used an example of how many women have applied for a job. Well, you know, I could have a name um, that doesn't enable you to know what my gender is. So, True. so, so, how does it how does it circumvent that scenario? It doesn't, and I think that's a really important point. For the most part, it doesn't. Uh, so, given the same data, right? If it doesn't have access to additional data. Um, then it's going to fall back to similar things that a human. Now, I'm generalizing. That's not that's not really true from a pure technical perspective. Um, sometimes it's sort of opaque how these things are working. But assuming we have the same data, and I like to think of it like, you know, like de detecting whether there's a picture, uh, whether there's a cat in the picture, for example. That's a pattern recognition uh, based system that over machine learning systems are very good at this. If if you can show it. 10 billion, you know, 10,000 uh, pictures with cats and 10,000 without, it will eventually learn to pick the ones with the cats. Um, and, he, and, and it'll do it in a way, really, it's, it's a pattern recognition thing. It'll do it in a way that's probably similar in how the old neural network on top of my shoulders is going to do it. Um, but Gene, you make a good point, is that it's not magic. So if we're really looking at a thousand, let's say, paper resumes, we can't see a picture. Um, and then what do we have to go on? Uh, now, if we, we'll, we'll train the machine learning system in the same way. We'll train it, we'll, we'll train it with labeled data. So we'll say, here's, here's 10,000 female applicants and here's 10,000 male applicants. And we'll push it through with labeled data like that and see if it starts to learn. The model starts to learn and starts to make good predictions. And then we'll test it, right? So what is it looking at? It's looking at name. It may be looking at some other stuff. And sometimes it's hard to tell what exactly what it's doing. That's there's a common thing in machine learning systems where sometimes the better they work, the less obvious it is how they're what exactly they're doing. They come become black boxes depending on how complex they are. But I think one that's one thing we get hung up on with HR stuff is the human's gonna have the same problem, right? Like we we have this similar problem in resume parsing. Resume parsing has become the domain of AI, of machine learning systems. And this is not sexy stuff. It's it's where did they go to school? What was their what did they study? The field of study. When did they graduate? Um, what was their last job? Uh, what was their title of their last job? So these are it turns out these are these are actually fairly hard problems to solve for at scale. So if we're talking about a million resumes at a high quality rate uh, for a machine, and we've now employed machine learning systems to do this. And they do it about the same as a human. But what's interesting is people get very upset when they see this error rate because what what it, what we see in the industry, in the whole industry, not this is not hiring salt. Sovereign's been this industry; it's been a leader in the industry forever, um, and many others. But we see a sort of double-digit error rate in that. So so you know, if you do a million resumes, maybe you'll have a ten percent error rate. You know, you're going to drop. You're going to only get nine hundred thousand good ones. But if we look at it and go, well. Okay, but what what that does if we get nine hundred thousand good ones, 
then we can do all kinds of software can do all kinds of good stuff with that date with that now structured data. We can then start to start to do all kinds of other stuff. And humans have the same error rate. They have an eight to ten percent error rate on that task, which actually goes up the more we use them because they get bored. So again, it's it's sort of like I look at it as the machines have error rates um, and they're not perfect and they're they're really not magic, right? So they're not going to be. And 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 I also think they, we don't want them to be. One one customer asked us, "Okay, cool. So you can do this gender thing, and it's you know it's pretty good. It works eighty nine percent of the time. Well, we want you to do LGBTQ." And then, you know, we we came back and said, "Okay, well, how would a human do that?" We came back to the customer and said, "Well, how would a human do that? You know, let's think about that because it's not AI is not magic. It has to get the data from somewhere. It has to pull the information from somewhere. You know, that's the input." And so we started talking about. There's actually a paper, I believe, from Stanford, um, a couple of years ago that that said they thought they could do that with enough pictures. Maybe I think it was like 100 samples per per person. They thought they could predict with you know again 80, 90 percent accuracy. And then it becomes the question: Do we want them to? Do we really want them to do that? You know, is that a good thing for machines to be doing? <laughs> so. Yeah, because once you have that data, you know, that the assumption is you you need to do something with that information. So once you've measured it, you should take some sort of action. John, I'm I'm I, I know this is your wheelhouse. What what uh, what do you think? So eighty, ninety percent accuracy. Is that good enough for figuring out what somebody's gender is or some other immutable construct about them. I mean, it, it sounds, you know, I guess you could say that human beings would make a similar mistake, but we're talking about the level of authority that a machine brings to a conversation and the certainty that is ascribed to a machine. And you'd think that you'd want to hold the machine to a much higher standard than a human being uh, mm -hmm. because People give them credit for being things that they aren't. People accept the answers from a machine much more rapidly than from a human being. And so I look at that 10 to 20% and I go, holy shit, what it's like to be one of those 10 to 20%. The machine's got the machine's batting eight for 10, yeah. but my mom just didn't get a job. Right. 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 And so how do you reconcile statistical success? with the empathy necessary to be a functioning yeah, human being. The humanity of the situation. Yeah. It's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that is a great point. And that's probably, probably need to start as an industry. We probably need to start sort of a, an ethics and automation conversation and it needs to get pretty advanced pretty quickly because you hit on a really interesting point, John is, is, and this is actually, I used to have a blog up. I can't remember why I hate machine learning. And, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I founded the machine learning conference and I know lots of these people and it's not a joke. I hate, I hate machine learning systems because um, they're very hard to predict as a software company. They're very hard to predict when, when they'll be done and when they'll be good enough to, to roll out. And the, and the, the key point in these, as you just touched on, which is great. Uh, we're used to computers being these, what we would call deterministic systems. We're, we're used to them being calculators. And calculators don't ever make mistakes for the most part. I mean, they have a very incredibly low error rate as long as someone's not putting in the wrong data, right? Um, so in, in other words, if a calculator is making a mistake, it tends to be 
a human that's actually made the mistake. That's not the case with with these type of systems. These these predict these are predictive systems, and you know the design of these systems goes back to biological you know biological neural networks, which were found to predict almost everything. You know your your neural networks and your brains right now are predicting the next thing I'm going to say before I say it. It's a calorie saving uh, utility that the brain uses a bunch of tricks, tons and tons of prediction, but it's not always right. And and these systems are not always right either. So to, to your, back to your question, I think that software, I think that there's a great responsibility or there's starting to become a great resp- responsibility, especially in HR tech, right? Where the stakes are much higher, where your mom might not get the job because software systems need to be designed around these capabilities in a transparent way. So you can understand that there's an error rate and, and you can understand how they're being used. And I think that's super important because the error rate's not really going away. Um, these systems are, these systems are notoriously biased, right? There's a huge conversation between the, 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 the greats of, of the machine learning world, um, Tim Nitt from Google and Jan LeCun from Facebook. Um, about um, bias, basically vision systems, computer vision systems, um, uh, transposing race, right? And particularly they recognize white faces and the re- more than anything else. And sometimes they do other weird stuff to non-white faces. And Jan LeCun, who's you know certainly one of the very best in the entire world at, at this stuff, he says, yeah, because they were trained on ImageNet an image net is a database of pictures of white people. If they were trained on an image, uh, it's millions and millions of pictures. If they, if we had that data set to train these systems and on, on, on a more diverse data set, then they would work that way. But, but we didn't. And what's funny is this stuff is being baked into software systems and shipped right now across the board. So without a lot of transparency. So you make a great point. Uh, these these new these are non-deterministic systems. The reason I hate them is because my engineers will say, "I'll say, how long will this feature take to be built?" And they'll say, "It will take a month for me to tell you to give a ballpark of where whether it will work at all. <laughs> or one month to tell you whether it will work at all, and then could be six months before we get it working well." Whereas in old school software, it was connect this button Whoa. to this and do this. You know, and we knew, and a good engineer could say that'll be done seven days and they would do it you know and they'd buffer it by two days and it always worked <laughs> you know <laughs> and these don't you know because it's just trial and error i think it's really scary though to your point about what's being baked in and and what's being used for decision support um that was flawed in the first place who, who should own ethics i mean <laughs> What's funny is like it's it needs to be a bit of a per industry thing. I think in a way, I mean, I think the system responsible for predicting whether or not you're going to like the new Taylor Swift song doesn't need to have the same ethics that that you know some of these HR tech systems have or credit uh, validation systems have or there's some of these other things to decide whether you get a home loan based on God knows what your social posts or something like that or your picture. Um, those probably have a higher degree of, we want those systems to be more ethically responsible than, and, you know, something, like I said, that maybe picks what song I I look at next or what Netflix thing I might like. So I think it needs to be, I think the industries need to step up uh, and start putting some, some, you know, 
something in place, you know, some some thinking in place at least. We're, maybe we're doing it right here. We're starting it out. Yeah, I'm wondering oh. if that's the fox in the hen house, though. John Somser, what uh, you've written on the the AI ethics oh, and listen, AI listen. topic. Sometime, sometime we'll do a show about the ethics projects that I have going <laughs> on because because there are substantial ethics projects in the space. But you can't stand them up overnight. This is not an easy button thing, just like the core problem isn't an easy button thing. You have to, well, one of, one of, the, one of the interesting design problems is it's impossible to field a team that is adequately diverse. So every design is gonna have a hiccup in it of some kind because the engineers couldn't imagine all of the possible uses for the tool. Um, um, and so, so just like that problem, you have to have an ethics function that is as broadly diverse as it's possible to be. I've built one that's got a dozen people who are every shade of every imaginable piece of the rainbow, plus every shade of politics, plus every shade of values construct, plus every shade of technical. Um, and this team doesn't make decisions. It evaluates things and gives conflicting pieces of advice because ethics always has conflicting pieces of advice. And it's a genius. I mean, this is, a, this is a good prototype for how to do it, but not everybody can afford to. And an awful lot of people in business don't want to think that hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I don't know what you do, except suggest HR departments that the real locus of the ethics problem is inside of the HR department. Um, and that you need to build structures there that are like these things. Yeah, I, I think that some of that, absolutely, right? Some of that, 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 that's how we look at it too. I think that, you know, the the practical demand of the of the HR department or the hiring manager might be something like, <clears throat> you know, I, I hey, we had a we had a company that was hiring for a lot of roles, and they had an overarching overarching directive to hire a certain percentage of women and that was their goal. And they were measured, you know, by that metric. And, you know, some of the role, the roles, the availability of women candidates were not equal across the roles. And one of the roles that stuck out was forklift operator. And they came to us, we, we did an analysis of social data and said, what we came back with was four to 6% of forklift operators are female. You know, so if their diversity goal is the same as, you know, for JavaScript engineers as it is forklift operators, and you know, so the HR department sort of doesn't monitor these things today, right? They just sort of like, you know, ham-fistedly make demands, and then or hiring managers, whoever it is, make demands, and then software companies like us here, you know, transparently, like I heard a long time ago. Google, Google wants to hire more female engineers. This was like 2016. There was a big article about it. And they're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars doing it. So I was like, cool, I'm going to make a button that brings female engineers to the top of the list. If there's a thousand of them or 10,000 of them, the first hundred are going to be female. And uh, so, you know, I ham fistedly build one of these systems to do that. Right? And it's going to have problems. And, you know, but nobody cares. It's like you said, John, it's like no one wants to, you know, they, Google thinks it's doing something good. And we think we're doing something good because we're, you know, helping solve the problem. I'm going to drag you past past the end time of the thing, because one of the questions that I have is, imagine how the algorithm learns, and you're going to have to, 
we're going to have to figure out how to get specific about what's inside of the models, even if it's really, really hard. You know, in, in the naming conventions of ethnic minorities in the United States, up until about 1975, one named one's children in a way that allowed the children to become the spearhead of integration because integration was the objective. And so names, you didn't go to a historically ex college. You went to the best white college you could get into because the name of the game was creating proximity so that integration would succeed. And then about 1975, there was a rearrangement of the naming values um, and so we've got these more identifiable names of people who affiliate more broadly in, in communities that are of like people rather than that integration goal. And so you, you cram that data into a, a, a machine learning algorithm, it's going to discriminate against the people who were born before 1975. I was going to say, there's your ageism problem right there. Right. It's ageism yeah. and, you know, my... My friend Chris Williams down the street is who, who's a sixty-year-old um, insurance executive. He's he's not going to bubble up, you know. He's just not going to bubble up. And so, if the question is how do you find people like him, the data is going to be the problem. The data, the the real live. If you had comprehensive data, the data would be the problem. Um, because it's inconsistent for cultural reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So, so the question is, how do you weed that stuff out if we're going to use this stuff? And it's got an 80% error rate. But in the machine's case, it's 80% of um, all the things that don't fit. And in the human's case, it's some other variable. The errors, the errors in the error rate are not the same. Um, and the machine is more likely to produce bias, I think, because it's more likely to reflect accurately the data. But mm -hmm. but the machine is able to achieve speed that obviously human resources can't. So what what are we actually what are we trying to solve for here? Are we trying to get eighty percent faster because we need it right away? You know, I, I guess I guess my question is. Can we afford to be purists because of the business demands? Right. I think I think that's the heart of the ethics question. I think I, I think, I, think that, I got that, John Sumser to pause there for a moment. I'm feeling like no, I'm no, no, no. Some. That is exactly the heart of the ethics question because you you don't have a question if you don't have a, a commercial structure. Right. The, the question assumes that there's a commercial structure. Yeah. And at the same time, screwing it up 80% of the time faster, um, screwing it up 20% of the time faster than somebody could screw it up 20% of the time when they're doing the human way. I, I don't know that that's an mm -hmm. adequate reason for doing something. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, machine learning is really the, it's really the marriage of statistics and statisticians and programmers, right? It's, it's basically right. a statistician that can program or a programmer that can understand some statistics is, is who these folks are. And, you know, it's funny because it, 
statistics is also one of these traditionally very inaccurate uh, and very biased in a sense. Wait, right? Your statistics prove the point that you're trying to prove, confirmation bias, that sort of stuff. And so we see that same thing being carried forward. And, and I guess the point is um, we see that we, it, it's not new because we see this in statistics all over the all over the world, right? In medicine, I mean, it's very hard to understand some of the stuff, statistics about COVID, for example. You know, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I tend to think of it as, you know, again, there's no regulation right now. So these software companies, software companies do whatever they want and they don't have to disclose how it works. You know, I think companies are starting to, to demand a little bit more. And in fact, we, you know, we've, uh, we've reduced the complexity of some of these systems to be able to explain them because there was too much friction. You know, the, cu the customer was like, well, how's it work? Well, we can't tell you. <laughs> we, we literally can't tell you exactly what it, why it thinks this person's male or female or why this person. So we started to move in another direction and say, well, you know, in a place where we're being asked to prove out why, you know, this is happening, we need to simplify, you know, and, may, and, and maybe, it, and maybe it doesn't work as much. It, maybe it, maybe it is in some cases it has, it's not as effective in some cases, but it's provable, you know? And so there may be somewhere it just says, I don't know, right? Maybe in 20 or 30% it says, I don't know. But if it says, I know, then here are the reasons why, and it can be validated by a human. You know? So we've, awesome. we've seen some trends in that. Awesome. Well, so, so, so you've got this thoughtful approach and you are in a, um, a crowded, marketplace of all sorts of people claiming all sorts of stuff. Yeah. How do you, how do you communicate the thoughtfulness that's embedded in the product? Well, that's a great question, John. I, I think, um, <clears throat> I, I believe actually that this will start to become a differentiator for companies to be able to be transparent. So I, I think it becomes a feature and, you know, we've, we started to move down this road of, you know, we have a trademark on, on transparent scoring because our scoring has become transparent. It, it's probably the fifth or sixth version of, of that model. And so I, I think we're starting to see, or at least we, we went down that road because we, we saw signs saying, well, if it, if it can be transparent, then it's, it's going to be easier to sell. Uh, so I think we'll start to see that that trend, and there's some movement in that in some areas of, of machine learning. Is you know maybe it's you know, and the other the other the other side of it's just I think the customer is getting smarter. You know when they see a graph that says you know 27% female, um, now they're wanting to know you know like how did you arrive at that? So show your math type of thing, and you know these graphs need to be annotated, just like and and that's where you know you sort of have to disclose your your error rate. So I think just coming out as the as the company or one of the companies that that is at the trying to be at the forefront of this in, in the absence of any real leadership or regulation from the industry, um, it's just that's how we see it. Is try to try to do that, get out in front of it. Ted, tell us about talent intelligence, and and I, I see we're almost at time, so so take take a few moments and and explain talent intelligence to us because we saw that you did a recent webinar on that topic and. We were we were kind of interested, but also kind of wondering what that what that means. Sure, it, it's 
you know, it's really the talent version of business intelligence. So it's, you know, looking at all these disparate systems, your HRIS, your CRM, your ATS, or maybe many in, in a large company, maybe several of these systems running in parallel. Um, and it's, and it's adding so that those, those systems are all creating all this valuable data, right? Your, your recruiters and other people, hiring managers are adding notes to these systems after interviews, performance uh, metrics are being put into the HRIS by different systems. Um, the CRM is recording all kinds of cool data about what people are interested in and, you know, what's motivating them to click or to sign up or to, um, you know, apply. And, but these are all siloed. These are all siloed systems that don't talk to each other. So um, we, we can't get any trending data and we can't really provide any intelligence layer unless we bring a system on above those data sources, those data generating systems that just does that. And that's what talent intelligence really is, is a system just like, you know, this sort of 90s era of business intelligence that tapped into the accounting and finance and ERP and mm -hmm. supply and all this different stuff and started telling businesses how to, how to better run their business based on the data they were generating every day um, to run the business, that, that's what talent intelligence is, is, is the HR function uh, of these companies is generating this a tremendous amount of data. And I think it's just the evolution of, of software that has, it has the capability to handle this sort of data. We really kind of, we used to call it big data, like before we started saying machine learning and AI, we were calling it big data. And really what we were saying was just, it was data that was big enough that it didn't really work in a spreadsheet anymore. You couldn't tell what was going on and, and even, you know, certain types of databases. So with talent intelligence uh, sitting on top of those systems, um, we start to do all kinds of cool stuff. We can, for example, see, you know, uh, we can see fitness of fitness of uh, to task or fitness to job. We can see, we can start to show trending data on likelihood to leave a position for like internal mobility use cases. We can score applicants based on history, which is bias, right? So we're bringing, or there's that problem again, but based on historical uh, patterns. Um, and we can provide all kinds of different cool analytics. You know, diversity is a big one. Um, for example, looking at uh, <clears throat> something like diversity, there's so many different components to it. So, you know, what talent intelligence does for you is that, for example, says, well, yeah, you, you were crushing it at the top of the funnel. You had 30 or 40, 50% women. And what was happening, it points out problems, right? It points out problems. And when they got to the first in-person interview, for example, 30% of the women dropped out. What's happening when they get on site, right? Or nobody accepted the offer something like that. So it points out, it, it points, it kind of just shines light and darkness and the applications are varied. Uh, diversity is a big one. Um, things like uh, internal mobility and talent redeployment and, um, uh, you know, talent mining the database the data that already exists is a big one. You know, folks are out there on LinkedIn, not realizing that the person applied three weeks ago, they're trying to hit the person up, not realizing that, you know, they already interviewed or yeah. stuff like that. So it's just making that easier uh, because there's a lot of data out there. So, and as well as some of the stuff I talked about earlier, which is supply problems and, you know, is the goal really the right goal and is it making sense? And in the case of like the forklift operator, is it achievable with the talent pool exactly. we have or the external talent pool in the world? Yeah. Do those things make sense? That's, that's talent intelligence does all of those things. Um, 
can that's be interesting. Protected. That's interesting. So, so the market problem is people don't even know how to ask those questions right, right now. <laughs> they don't right? even they, know what they, they have. They, they, <laughs> you're, you're doing something. What, what's happened is HR has become a real-time, an, an actual real-time thing. And everybody who does HR thinks about it as a transactional world. And so they never ask the system level questions, right? right? Very, very few people ask the system level questions. That's part of why we're doing this radio show is, is HR is so transactionally high bound that um, you can't get to the sort of systems improvements that the kind of people we're having on the show actually are driving. And so mm-hmm. I think that's, that's what talent intelligence really is, is it gets you a real-time look at all of the dimensions that you ought to be looking at. Right. Real-time look. I mean, lots of cool stuff. Predictive, you know, trends on, on where things are going, all that kind of cool stuff. But you're right. It, it's probably a little ahead of its time. And and where we end up selling it is transactional. Right? We end up selling it as well. Put, that, put butts in seats for us. Right? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, does, it does maximize existing investments because, again, the tech stack is is – chock full and people don't even know what they have already. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, unfortunately, that does bring us to time today, Sean. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm. You can email me personally. I'm just Sean, S-H-O-N, at HiringSolve.com or just go to HiringSolve.com. There's there's all kinds of things to be linking at you trying to get you to talk to us. (laughs) Absolutely. I know that everyone's really good at that. And John, any closing comments before we let Sean get back to his day? No, no, no. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, Sean. Absolutely. Very interesting topic. 